If you please would turn with me this morning to 1 Timothy, the first letter of Paul to Timothy, and chapter 6, our text is found in verse 6. It's well known. We shall use this as our focal point this morning. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul is speaking of men particularly, but these things, they apply to men, women, and young children. Last week we looked at the subject of biblical womanhood. And so it's only fair to speak this morning predominantly, but hopefully to all, of the godly man. Next week, God willing, I want to say some words to the young and maybe the week after to our older friends specifically to break down the word of God to men, women, children and older friends. And just to look at this as a subject for one week each, what does the word of God say on these particular life stages and the only two genders that there are, men and women. How does God's word define the godly man? We know always Proverbs 30, 31 is the chapter that we usually go to to define the godly woman. I could have turned to lots of chapters this morning, but the one I've chosen is 1 Timothy 6. It oozes with fatherly concern, pastoral care from Paul to Timothy, his young friend, his young friend in the faith, who's now gone into the ministry. Timothy is a protege. If you don't know what that word means, it means somebody who's reached a position a lot younger than people normally do. And so Paul trains up Timothy as his young protege. He wants him to be a godly man. That's what the subject is today, a godly man specifically. Well, we find here in these words that Paul is describing the particular problems of ungodliness in men, and then he defines what it means to be godly and the gain that comes from that. And then he's going to describe specifically the godly man. The ungodly man, firstly. Secondly, the gain of true godliness. And then thirdly, the godly man. That's the sequence that Paul uses to describe these things. We read earlier in Psalm 12, David says and makes this statement, Lord, help! The godly man has vanished. It's as though he's gone up in a puff of smoke. Where are the godly men? Well, that's a good question. But it sort of implies that the problem is out there. And I just add to what David says. Yes, the godly man has vanished. There aren't many godly men before our eyes today. 
If we think of public life, who can you think of who is a model of godliness? There are very few. It always wasn't like that. You look back in time and in history and you can look back and you can think of that man, that woman, and you can say, they were godly. They were in high places. But I can vaguely think, and I ask you that question, you tell me afterwards, where is the godly man in public life? But we can add to that, where is this godly man? Where is the godliness in your life and in mine? And isn't that also what King David means? Where is this godly man? This is where he should be, before the eyes of God living as God would have him to live. Where is the godly man that should be in this body this morning? And so I want to challenge us by the need for godliness, particularly as outlined by Paul to Timothy in men. He's going to say godliness it with contentment is gain, but first of all, we look at the negative, and it's described here. We go right down to verse 4, and he first looks, as Paul often does, if you want to understand the definition of something positive, you first need to understand what it is not. So here's our first heading, the ungodly man. He's been describing to Timothy certain things that he must teach. In verse 3 he says, teach wholesome, healthy words. He has in mind the way that servants should respect their masters. Specifically, if they're godly masters. You know, in those days there was many servants, and we thought last week of the different reasons that you could find yourself being a servant. But in the way that God's word does for an ordered society, Paul says, teach in your church. You've got many slaves, and they've come to Christ. And they are to accept the teaching of the word of God, wholesome, healthy words for society to function. We are to respect authority. Masters, he has in mind elsewhere, politicians, governors, kings, queens, presidents. But, he says at the end of verse 3, and this introduces our theme, there are some, they won't have any of this, they are Christians, so-called, but they won't listen to this teaching that says that we are to respect our masters, your boss, who's an ungodly woman or an ungodly man. Do you respect them? Paul says to Timothy, teach. That's what the Lord requires. Verse 3, if anybody teaches otherwise, then this is not according to the doctrine 
of godliness. That's the background. Here are the features, verse 4, of ungodly men. And I say men specifically because when we look at the three features that are described, I see these in my life outside of Christ. And when I live in an ungodly way as a Christian, I see these things coming up again. See if you recognize this in yourself this morning. The people that teach according to the doctrine of godliness, they say you need to respect authority, but there are some that will have none of this. Why? First definition, pride. The first feature of the ungodly man, pride. Martin Luther said what he feared more than the Pope, more than Satan, was pride in his own heart. Pride that keeps coming back. Pride that says, I won't have God's way. I'll do it my way. The ungodly man is a proud man. And if you see pride welling up inside you, that is ungodliness. And it's against your Christian life. I move on, I could say a lot more. Secondly, the ungodly man, see if you recognize this, not in others, don't think of a person, that man, think of yourself. The ungodly person gets involved in things that he knows nothing about, knowing nothing. Are you an expert in everything? Do you have opinions on everything? The only opinion you want to hear from me is God's word. You don't want to hear what I think, and I don't really need to hear what you think. What I need to hear is, what does God's word say? Because that's all that counts. This man is proud. He knows nothing. Well, he knows a few things. But out things that are unimportant. His opinion. His little view of the world. Through two little holes in his head. That's the ungodly man. Third thing, he dotes, he obsesses. He has an unhealthy obsession with questions and arguments. Now, this isn't legitimate questions. What does this verse mean? What does that verse? Those are good things. But this kind of person loves to argue. He loves to trick people. He sits around the dinner table if you invite him to your house and he makes arguments that make other people feel uncomfortable. He picks holes. He twists words. He takes one of your sentences and turns it upside down, something you didn't even mean. He dotes about questions and strifes and plays and arguments about words. Do you recognize that? I do. Pride. 
expressing opinions when I shouldn't really be. I should just be saying what God's Word says. This is what is my job as a Christian, and particularly as a pastor and preacher. We don't need opinions. We need the Word of God and truth. This is the ungodly man. Let's go down. Verse 4, those are the three causes. Look at what it results in. From, whereof, verse 4, middle, whereof comes, this is the fruits, envy, strong feelings that sour a conversation. That's what the ungodly man does. He makes things uncomfortable, not for good reason, but because he's so jolly argumentative, because he wants to be first. He wants to have his voice heard. Listen to me, he says. He's proud, he knows nothing. And from his words and life come strong feelings that sour other people's life. That's what the word envy means. Then strife, the ungodly person, the ungodly father, the ungodly husband causes strife in a marriage and in a home, maybe in a church. Quarrelsomeness, argumentativeness. Thirdly, these words, they overlap slightly. It says in our authorized version, railings. There's a bitterness to this word. Things are said with a, a bitter twist. They're designed to cut, to hurt. You know the kind of person that says things and there's an agenda. There's an angle. They're telling you something because really they're trying to take a, a knife and go to the heart railings. Fourthly, evil surmisings. That means somebody that's got suspicion, somebody that thinks the worst instead of the best of all men. One of the traits of godliness is we think the best of all men. We don't assume the worst. We don't see shadows. We don't think that they meant what they... We think the best. Evil surmising. That's not godly behavior. And then the fifth one here, it's in the whole of this verse, verse 5, perverse disputings. It means constant friction. Godliness is the opposite. Godliness unites. Love harmonizes. But ungodliness causes arguments, and these people, they have corrupt minds. That's Satan getting into our life, into our speech, into our communication. And these people, Paul says to Timothy, isn't this strong language? They are destitute, bankrupt of truth. They're speaking their own thoughts, not the word of God. And they suppose that gain, one-upmanship, is godliness. 
This is what Paul says about ungodly men to Timothy. He says, from those people, withdraw yourself. Have nothing to do with them. Now, could that be said of any of us? Is that description of the ungodly man true of us? Sometimes, maybe not all the time. Be careful of pride. Be careful of ignorance of spiritual things and truth. And be careful with men particularly of an argumentative spirit. Withdraw from such people. Well, secondly, let's move on our second heading. Here's our text. Right in the middle, he's described in the negative what ungodly men look like. And now here's Paul's mathematical formula for godliness. He says godliness, the opposite of what he's just described. Plus or with contentment is great gain. If you want to be godly, you need to have the opposite of these things. Well, let's just turn it round. We're not proud. We need to be humble. We need to know about God. We need to know about what he says about the world. We need to know about what he says about us. And we need to stop being argumentative, finding fault, finding problems with others, causing strife and difficulty at home and in life. And we need to focus on the positive, godliness, and you know one of the characteristics of godliness, and this is very powerful and I think helpful for us, godliness is a bedfellow with contentment. What did Paul say? I have learned in whatsoever situation I am in, therewith to be content. He is situation agnostic. Put him in a cancer ward of a hospital. I'm content. Put him in the middle of a war scene. I'm exaggerating, deliberately. I'm content. Put him on his deathbed. I'm content. Because godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, the ungodly man is not content, not satisfied. He wants more. He argues, argues with God, argues with himself, argues with his wife. He wants more. But the godly man is happy with his lot. The godly man says, if God says it's best, it's best. The godly man doesn't think he deserves better. Pride says, I want more. I deserve more. I deserve better. The ungodly man probably lets you know he's looking for a wife. And the kind of wife he's looking for is a perfect wife. What a bad match that would be. A perfect wife with an ungodly husband. 
Don't look for a perfect wife. You'll never find one. The only perfect one is Christ. The ungodly man forgets that he's a sinner. And when there's a marriage, two sinners come together and they knock the edges off each other and they make a smoother pathway together. The ungodly man forgets he's a sinner at best, saved by grace. You see, contentment, as described by Paul here, godliness with contentment means sufficiency. If you're a believer, you have everything you need. You have Christ. It literally means self-sufficiency, although the sufficiency isn't in yourself, it's in Christ that lives within you. A spirit-filled Christian who's walking with Christ and the spirit is dwelling within has godliness with sufficiency, with contentment. All that we need is in Christ. Why do you need another car? Why do you need what God hasn't given you yet and may not give you at all? Why do you need the thorn in your flesh taken out? Because God has said, through Christ, my grace is sufficient. And if it's sufficient, you can be content. The godly man is fully content with the providence that God has allowed into his life. He's given you circumstances. He's given you this church. It's not a perfect church. And if you join it one day, God willing, another sinner will be added. And one more sinner is another potential problem. But by God's grace, each sinner that joins the church will have another means of grace supplied, channeled to their lives to challenge their sin, to build them up in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Godliness alongside contentment is the greatest gain. What do you aim for in life? Aim for godliness. Don't aim for a career. That may come. Don't aim for a wife. That may come. It may not. Don't aim for children, for anything. Make godliness your aim. Thomas Watson wrote a wonderful book. If you can get hold of it, do. The Godly Man. And it's for men and for women. I think he had 25, maybe 28. Many of them overlap, like the Puritans used to do. Characteristics of the Godly Man. Read it. Well, let's look at the godly man. Paul now moves to the positive. He reminds them that we should be content with nothing except for Christ. Verse 7, we came into the world with nothing. We go out with nothing. That's searching. We have food. We have clothing. Be content. 
You've got what you need because your heavenly Father will clothe you. If he clothes the lilies of the field, won't he clothe you? Having food and raiment therewith to be content. Now he mentions three more dangers for men. And again, I think these go right to the point. Three more dangers. Verse 9. His snare one, as we can call it, riches. Why is it that men particularly have a love of money? Why is it that men are never satisfied with their bank balance? Why is it that they want more and more and more? In my experience, yes, I'm sure there's exceptions, but men particularly have a love for money. He says here, but they that will be rich, they that desire rich, they'll fall into a temptation and into a trap. Be careful. Be careful what you wish for. You know, money causes more problems than those that don't have money. You learn to be content when you have little, but when you have much, you have many problems. The first problem. The second, materialism. That's allied to it. The love of stuff. The love of things you can see. You take delight in what's in your man cave. Your gadgets. The things you've got. And you feel so good. And then there's a third thing here. Hurtful lusts that drown men in destruction and lostness. I don't think he's just speaking about money and the love of it, although he comes back to that in verse 10. He speaks about the desires, the passions that men particularly have. The love of women. The love of sexual gratification. The love of hurtful things that will destroy your marriage, that will make you addicted, that will destroy you and take you into lostness. And then he comes back, maybe, or maybe it's the same theme, verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Now here's the positive. Godly man, verse 11, he stops with one of his famous interjections, but, but you, but thou, O man of God. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to those who've professed Christ, who really in their heart they love Christ, but something's got in the way. Or perhaps in my life, keeps on getting in the way. O man of God, He's going to tell you to flee from those things. Flee from those things, these things, the things he's just mentioned. Riches, materialism, hurtful lusts that get in the way of godliness. Flee, flee, run away. Have nothing to do with them. Take them out of your life. 
Don't go near them. Don't sail as close to the wind as you can. Go the opposite direction. Flee. Thou, O man of God, godly man, the man that desires to be godly this morning, run away from everything that would be a snare and a trap. And then, here's the positive. Again, it's a little list. We can't dwell on all of the six elements that he mentions, but I want to explain the word follow. Middle of verse 11. Thou, man of God, flee, leave. And here's the positive. Follow. The word for follow means persecute. Not in a bad way, but just think of the Apostle Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus. He chased after. He went into a town. Where are the God-fearers? Where are the Christians? I will chase them. Chase them down. And it's the same word for follow. Persecute and don't let go and don't stop after these things. Number one, righteousness. Oh, what does that mean? Everything that is of God is righteous. Everything that is of God is good. Everything that is of God is just and fair and righteous. That's what it means. Those are the things we should prosecute, persecute, chase after, follow in your life. What is good? What is just? Chase it. Sort out the chaff. Follow hard after that which is righteous. The second one in the list, that's what this whole chapter I think is about, godliness. Well, it means something different here. It means the whole scheme of the gospel. It says, chase after gospel witness, gospel preaching, gospel living, everything that's about an interaction between God and his scheme of salvation and men and women and children. That's what you should be obsessed about. That's what you need to persecute. Follow hard. I wake up in the morning. What am I going to chase after today? An additional acquisition? My bank balance? An argument? Or am I going to follow after God's scheme of salvation? Very searching. Thirdly, faith. Faith. We don't live by sight. We're the one in the family, if you're the godly man, we're the one that says, don't worry what you can see. Don't worry what you feel. Don't worry what somebody's said. We're going to live by faith. I can't see the outcome. I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But thou, O man of God, fight the fight of faith, he says. He expands in verse 12. The third thing on the list. Look to God. Look to his promises. Fight the fight of faith. Be the person that says, don't worry. God is on our side. If God is with us, who can be against us? Lay hold on 
eternal life. He goes back to the gospel again in verse 12. Fourthly, what's the next one in verse 11? Love. The godly man is a man of love. Love that covers a multitude of sins. Love that exemplifies Christ. The word for love here is agape, sacrificial, servant-like love. Love that says, I'll go last, not first. Love that says, you don't need to hear me, I'll say my bit at the end. Love that says, my obsession is to be Christ-like. Patience, fifthly, it means endurance. The godly man says, I'm going to keep going to the end. I don't so much care about today's defeat. I don't so much care about today's battle and challenge. I look to the end. God is the end of my journey. He's already had the triumph. And therefore, I can be patient. I can have perspective. I can look upward. I can look through the difficulty. And finally, in verse 11, meekness. We're talking about men. Men? Meek? We should be the gentlest, the kindest, we should be meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. What did they say of Christ? He said very little of himself. So little, there's just a few phrases that Christ said about his own life. He said, I am meek. If he was meek, why aren't I meek? Why aren't I lowly and gentle? Because I'm ungodly. What should I be? Meek. Godly. Follow after. Chase. Pursue. Righteousness. Godliness. Faith. Love. Patience. Meekness. This is a charter for the godly man. Would we have that printed upon our heart? and upon our mind. We've looked at the ungodly man. We've looked at Paul's formula for godliness with contentment. Would we have more godly men in this church? There would be more evangelism. There would be more good works. There would be more love for the unlovely. There would be more care and compassion for the elderly. There'd be less of my opinion. And there'd be more of Christ. And people would come in and see how they loved one another. Because Christ dwells in this life and in this church. The godly man.